Wow. Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Church. It is awesome to be here. We're going to be looking in 2 Timothy this morning. The letter of Paul to Timothy, the second one. It's just great to be here. It is uh, great to renew acquaintance and we want to get to know you. First of all, I must say thank you uh, on behalf of our family for the substantial gift that you have just recently put together on our behalf. And uh, that makes a great big difference in the lives of your missionaries and uh, your your generosity through the years and your faithfulness through the years is uh, is part of what makes our life uh, uh, so good. And, and you are such a blessing to us. 26 years ago, a couple of young kids from Missouri drove into town. Everything we owned was in a two-door Toyota Tercel. Spent some time with you and uh, enjoyed it, and you became a part of our hearts. A lot has happened in 26 years. That was eight children ago, and uh, two churches we left here uh, and went on to help plant a church in southern Utah, and now we are in central Utah. We were the young kids back then, just uh, fuzzy-faced and barely married, and now we're the old people on the mission field. And uh, our role has recently changed in the last few years, and now we go from uh, young or new arriving missionaries to now we get have the privilege of of coaching and and uh, supervising 25 missionary families on our field. And we have the privilege of uh, not only... Uh, I, I have the privilege of being the teacher at, at Payson Bible Church, but we get to uh, oversee 14 churches on our mission field and a radio station. And so we have like two flocks and two halves to our lives. We have our, our local church that we pay attention to and that takes about half of our time, and then the other half is uh, taken up with overseeing the mission field and, and serving them and making sure that they, are, uh, they have everything they need, which means we have no time. So it's all good. It is such a privilege to be here, and I hope that uh, you, will, you will join us in the small groups and we can get to know you personally, because I, I, I'm fully aware that we know just a fraction of you, and we would love to get to know you better. Let's pray together. Father, I just uh, just pray that this would be a special, special time of fellowship today, that the flock of God that is located here would, would just uh, be better bound together, and that our, our eyes would see heaven more clearly, and uh, better appraise the things of heaven and earth today. So use your word, Lord, and uh, use this, this small moment to just talk to us through this bit of Scripture. And thank you so much for it. Thank you so much for the trouble and the, and the actual blood that was involved in the uh, writing of this particular passage of Scripture. And we appreciate the, the gravity of the moment when this letter was written Help us to appreciate it, we pray. Amen. Last year I was, uh, I, I was given a challenge 
at least I, I took it as a challenge, a, a positive challenge. One of our guys in our church responded to my preaching and said that I was becoming performance-based, that I was beginning to uh, preach in such a way that it sounded like I was insisting things upon our people and uh, starting to measure people's worth by uh, in, in terms of performance and whether people are doing or not doing. And uh, I always take that kind of stuff very seriously. His appeal to me was that we needed more love and more grace and that I needed to back off of the words must or ought uh, and, and just live more in love and grace. And I always, I always welcome that kind of input and uh, I find that stimulating. Whenever I'm challenged or I have somebody give comment or I'm criticized, I find that really stimulating personally because then it gives me an opportunity to go, okay, all right, thank you. I, I'll take that to heart and I will evaluate and I'll take some time to study and make sure that I'm in the right place because I don't want to just slip off into performance-based uh, religion where you're always just checking up on people or you're doing what you're supposed to be doing kind of thing. And what it stimulated me to do was to uh, look at the entire New Testament because in my mind I'm thinking, all right, if, if we go all love and we go all grace, then what about this great big body of material in the New Testament that are known as the imperative statements of Scripture. They are the direct commands. It's sort of like you put the word you, the pronoun you, in a parenthesis at the beginning of a command. You do this. And the, the, the Word of God, when you walk through it, is full of imperatives. And so... I, I, it took a, a number of months. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go on a little bit of a journey, and I'm going to just take one of my old Bibles, and I'm going to start marking it up, and I'm going to locate from Matthew to Revelation all of the imperatives of Scripture. So I thought that would be fun to do, because I, I, I think there are a lot of must verses in there, a lot of verses that suggest ought. We ought to be doing this, or really have to be doing this. Especially you run into clusters of them in the last parts of Paul's letters, like uh, Ephesians 4 through 6, you find just great clusters of imperatives, direct commands, and Colossians 4 through 6, and, and so forth. What do you do with those? Starting with Jesus, who said, don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. You know, you, you gotta, the imperatives are written in such a way that you don't have an option. You know, theologically, there are a lot of passages in Scripture where we can toss it around like a volleyball and, you know, sort of have the option of whether we want to adopt view A or view B. But when it comes to the imperatives, that's, that's really the statement of God. And, and it's, it's much more clear. So I did that. I found it very rewarding. And, I thought what we would do today is just look at one little part of that. and That is in 2 Timothy. And we can uh, go through this and look at the imperatives of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is a letter from Paul to Timothy, of course. It is, it is a personal letter 
man to man, pastor to pastor. And we're sort of reading somebody else's mail here, literally. We're, we're reading something that was not meant for us. And, it is, and directly it is not for us, Second Timothy. Uh, but we get a lot out of it as application. Because this is a this is a statement to a letter to a pastor from another pastor, but uh, we get to read it and glean so much application material from it. First thing I want to just give you a little bit of context on this. Uh, looking at Paul's situation, first of all, he is in prison in Rome when he writes this. He is older, and he is nearly alone. He, he says uh, early on that only Luke is with him. And the, the rest of his team and the rest of his posse are out somewhere else. He has very limited resources. How do we know that? Because he asks Timothy in chapter 4 to bring his coat when he comes. So, so he, he's actually down to the need of a coat. That's pretty basic living, isn't it? And he's about to die. Not like I'm going to die tomorrow kind of die, but he is aware that he's at the end of the road. The reason that we know it's not like I'm going to die tomorrow because he says in chapter 4, could you bring my coat and please come before winter. So he's, he's anticipating that he's at least going to be alive, maybe till winter, we hope. He didn't know, but he knew that his life was about over. And this letter of Second Timothy is, is grave. It, there's there's no lightness in this letter of Second Timothy because it's it's full of the last statements that a man will make, and these are the last words of the apostle Paul, and so he's taking this moment to be very grave and serious, and he is also resigned to what will happen next. He and by the time we get to chapter four, he just says. I know this is it. And I know that I'm just going to pull up my tent stakes and fold up my tent and I'm ready to travel. And I'm going to be gone. And so he knows that. He gives no future goals in this letter. If you look at his other letters, he's thinking like a overseer of a mission project. And, and he's saying, I got this goal. I got that goal. You get to Romans chapter 16. He says, I hope to just come and see you guys. And then I'm going to cruise on by and I'm going to go see Spain because then I will have evangelized the entire north shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea. He had small dreams, didn't he? So here he is and he says, I, I, I want to be... Uh, I have all these goals, but then when we get to Second Timothy, he has no goals. He doesn't state the next thing he's going to do. And the only next thing he's going to do is to die. And so you know that there's this finality about Second Timothy. And he is focused as, as men are when they get to the end. And you know that you know, you're, you're about to just bump into that concrete wall that is death. And you know that you've got that much time before you reach the wall. You, you get really focused, don't you? You, you start to think uh, what really matters. And you're no longer thinking about golf or entertainment. Uh, you're just thinking about, hey, this is it. So he's resolute. As he said in 
in Philippians chapter 1, he says, you know, I'm conflicted. On the one hand, I want to stay around. I want to edify. And I want to be valuable to God's people. On the other hand, I'd sure like to be home and be with Jesus. I've got that conflict. But now this conflict is about over. And he's, he just knows that here it goes. So that's, that's Paul's situation. Timothy's situation is that he is a teaching elder in Ephesus, uh, hundreds of miles to the east of where Paul is in Rome. And he's about to come and see Paul. And he is facing apparent mission, ministry t- challenges. And, and Paul would be very aware of those ministry challenges in Ephesus because he was there for some time and uh, had been involved in a riot because some people wanted to kill him because he was preaching the gospel and that was cut into, cutting into the idolatry-making uh, trade. And so uh, Paul is fully aware of what's going on in Ephesus and the people, actually the very people who were involved in this. Second Timothy has heroes, people that someday we get to look and see in heaven. Have you thought of that? Whenever I look at somebody who's a hero in, in Scripture, I think to myself, all right, that's one I want to look up. I'm going to go talk to them when I get to heaven. I definitely want to track Titus down because I've got some questions for him. He seems like a real solid guy and one of the great guys of Scripture. But let me give you a quick list, and perhaps you can think about naming some of your children these names. Uh, Onesiphorus was there. He was a helper. Mark is mentioned in Second Timothy. Crescens is a missionary. Titus is a teacher. Tychicus is a teacher. Carpus is a fellow worker. Luke is there. He's the only one beside Paul at this point. Uh, there's Priscilla and her husband Aquila. They are disciplers. They are massive disciplers. Uh, there's Erastus and Eubulus and Pudens and Linus and Claudia who all worked for God. And there is there are two all-star women in Second Timothy. They're like major Mother's Day material, right? And they are Eunice, the faithful mother of Timothy, and Lois, the faithful grandmother of Timothy, who gave to him the gift of a sincere faith. And so they got some heroes that we can mention in Second Timothy, and we look forward to seeing them in heaven. And you might want to track these people down and say, hey, what's it like? Now, there are some zeros in Second Timothy as well, because Paul, like David over a thousand years before, as David was on his deathbed, he was sitting with Solomon and he was saying, I want this guy dead. I want this guy dead. I want this guy dead. Make sure this guy is miserable before he dies. And so David is going through a checklist at the end of his life with Solomon. And Paul's doing the same thing here. Uh, he's, he's looking, he's going, I got some people in my mind that, that aren't heroes. There was Phygellus and Hermogenes. Can you imagine be, being written down in the Word of God forever as a bad person, you know? Like, this is not good for your resume, all right? So, there's Phygellus and Hermogenes. They were unfaithful men. There was Hymenaeus and Philetus, who were false teachers. There was Alexander, the metal worker, who was in opposition to Paul. And he did Paul much harm. 
There was an unnamed people who were false teachers in 2 Timothy. And then let's save the best for last, Demas, who has forsaken me and loved this present world and gone away. Let's call Demas a flake, okay? He is a flake. He's a guy, you, you just don't want him batting clean up, okay? And Paul is about to leave this world. And what you see of Paul is a man all stripped down to the basics here. And when he is all stripped down, you are left with just a couple of things going on in his life. And, and that is the value of Second Timothy. Because you look and you say, okay, you take away this guy's house. You take away his money. You take away his stuff. You take away his friends. You take away everything. You reduce Paul. You take a guy right down to it. And when the preacher of the gospel is all reduced, what do you got? You've got the gospel. You've got God's people. And you have the hope of heaven. And those then become the priorities of a man who is up against that wall that is the end of life. Okay? And, and that, that's what you end up with. Now, all of that introductory, we're going to look at the imperatives of 2 Timothy. There are 29, so we've got a blast, okay? Uh, there, we, there are three kinds of imperatives in 2 Timothy. The first one is, is rather lightweight and, uh, and more uh, just like uh, house cleaning type stuff. And they, they show up in chapter 4. We can go through those really quick. Bring Mark. He's good for me. Oh, that's a change, isn't it? Because the last time we heard about Mark in Acts chapter 16, Mark was a flake. He had backed away on the ministry and Paul didn't like him anymore. Bring Mark. He's useful to me for the ministry. Change of heart on Paul's part. Please bring the cloak and the books and the parchments. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Greet Onesiphorus. He was so valuable for me for the ministry. And then, last of all, could you try to come before winter? So those are some of the, the, just like house cleaning type imperatives that Paul gives to Timothy. And then there's another category of imperatives, and they have to do with ministry and decisions to be made. And and let's look at them one at a time if you get your fingers ready to roll. You start in verse chapter 1, verse 13. And he says this, these, these have to do with resolution in the ministry. He says, first of all, retain the standard of sound words, verse 13, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which were in Christ Jesus. What you want to do is just always be at the top of your game when you're preaching the Word of God. And always approach it just with this uprightness, this sobriety where you realize that this is the Word of God. That's what he's talking about here. Then he says in verse 14, here's another imperative. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure. Guard the treasure that has been entrusted to you. In other words, defend it. You know, into every church, especially in ours, I don't know why, we're sort of like a magnet for people who have odd theologies. But um, there are people who are always coming in and they're always challenging the basics of the truth and saying, well, I'm going to do this, you know, how about this? And it usually has to do with, with uh, a renewing a, the Galatian error of going back to works righteousness. And, and he says, you want to just guard that treasure. 
This is the Word of God that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. You don't ever want to fudge on that. Guard that treasure. And then he go on to chapter 2, verse 14. <clears throat> Remind the people of these things. Now what things? We go back to verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with Him, chapter 2, verse 11, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Remind them of these things. Timothy, just go back to the basics, the, to the, the skeletal structure of the teaching of the Word of God. and You have to remind them. Because as people, we have sort of an open-ended mind where stuff goes in and stuff goes out. We have to keep reminding, reminding, reminding. Which is why we partake of the Lord's table and we, we eat the bread and we drink the cup on a regular basis. Why? To remind. Remind them of these things. Timothy, you've got that job to do. Chapter 2, verse 2. You have a job to do, Timothy. The stuff that you have heard from me, all the stuff that you got from me, I want you to go and entrust it to faithful men. Timothy, you have a responsibility to take the gospel that you heard. So there are four levels in verse 2. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. Okay? So let's keep passing this on. And the man of God has a responsibility to pass on the Word of God. So entrust this stuff to faithful men. Verse 14 as well. Solemnly charge the people. Uh, that's another imperative. It's solemnly, that's what's so brighty. Charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. There are all kinds of concepts that we can come up with and theologians are great for coming up with big long words. And, and we could sit there and chat about that and, and lose the picture. It's like walking through a forest and you get all distracted with one tree. Oh, look at this tree. And you forget, hey, there's so much more. There's so much more to Scripture. And you got to shake yourself once in a while and say, wait, are we, are we back on priority here? Charge them. Don't get into word wrangling. Verse 16, chapter 2, verse 16. I want you to avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. So you just don't want to be a part of... Everybody else is talking about stuff. And believers... We have a tendency to do that. Let's talk about jobs, cars, sports, stuff like that. Let's, you know, we're all distracted by that. And Paul says, you got to have like no ears for that. You've got to avoid it and avoid worldly empty chatter. Stay on the gospel. Chapter two, verse twenty-three is another imperative: refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. People talking about stuff that really doesn't matter. In our church, I don't know why, but we've got some conspiracy guys, you know, ammo and food supply. And so they're all about finding out who the bad guys are. I'm thinking, good, but you know what? You can't stop it because Scripture says that that one big bad guy that is coming is coming and you cannot take him out with your deer rifle. Okay, so... uh, you sort of, you know, when they start talking about barcodes and marks of the beast stuff, I'm going, yeah, 
good, but I'm not going to get involved with that because that Scripture already tells me how that works out. All right, So I'm going to avoid that. Uh, verse 25, it says, The Lord's bondservant, verse 24, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. You've got to gently correct God's people. You can't always walk around with an axe handle just going, you're wrong, you know. But you've got you to be gentle with them. Chapter 3, verse 5, here's another. There are a group of men who are ungodly, and they're preaching a bad message. And he says at the end of chapter, verse five, chapter 3, verse 5, avoid such men as these. You know, you see a guy that's a false teacher, and he's, he's all speculative, and and he's teaching perhaps even a sensuality message, you just be circumspect, you know. Stay away from the guy. Just avoid him. Chapter 4, verse 2. These are really solid ones here. And we got a punch of them just all in one verse. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means you're always on. And that's something you need to know about your pastoral staff that... Uh, your pastor doesn't have clock in and clock out hours technically, okay? Because there's stuff going on 24 hours a day and the work of the ministry is always with your pastoral staff and your elders. You know that? And and uh, the obligation of the elders is be ready all the time. All the time be ready. And then reprove, rebuke, and exhort. You know what that suggests? That suggests that your elder team and your pastoral team are watching you. And they're out there, hopefully looking with the eyes of a gentle shepherd, and they're, saying, and they're, they're checking out God's people. And once in a while, they're going to have to come up, and they're going to have to say, can I talk to you? There's something really important I need to talk to you about. That's their obligation from Scripture. Okay? They're not being abusive at that point. Uh, they're just simply obeying God. So reprove. That's one of the things. It's really like just get right up in somebody's face and talk to them. Then there's rebuke. And that is also uh, a very strong word. It just means, hey, stop now. Stop what you're doing. And then there's exhort. Hey, let's go. That's what exhortation is. Sort of a, sort of a tough cheerleader. You can do this. Let's go. We, we, can, we can get this done. Exhort with, all, with great patience and instruction. Chapter 4, verse 5. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Those are four in a row, right, right there. Imperatives. Just do the work of an evangelist is the one we want to look at there. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy was apparently, if we look at chapter 1, getting a little distracted and that happens. Do you know that the majority of guys who graduate from a theological education will not be involved in full-time ministry at the end of their adult life. Most of them are going to bail uh, in the course of that because they lose their, lose their thought. You know, it's like they, they get demotivated or they get discouraged or stuff happens and they start to lose their eye on the ball. They're not looking anymore. He says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 15, you want to keep out an eye out for Alexander, the metal worker, because that guy is bad news. Now that leaves another category of 
uh, of, of imperatives that I hope we can get to really fast. And that is these imperatives having to do with the character of the heart of man in Second Timothy. And if you're underlining, let's go through those. And he says, first of all, in chapter 1, verse 6, Timothy, I want you to stir up that gift of God. It's like a campfire. If you've ever gone camping and you got this nice old fire in the evening, and then you go to bed, and you wake up in the morning, and the, the fire pit is all quiet, and you just got gray ash there. What do you got to do? Take a stick, stir it up, and throw some fresh stuff on there, and it'll get blazing for breakfast, right? That's what it's supposed to do. He says, Timothy, once you take that gift of God that was given to you by the laying on of hands, this was not just any old recreational gift of God. I put my hands on you. I gave you this gift. I want you to put some new wood on that fire and I want you to start that bad boy up again. Okay? So even Timothy can get distracted. So kindle up the gift of God. Chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Chapter 1, verse 8 as well. Join me in suffering. He says, Timothy, I know you're going to be thinking, you're going to be tempted. Here's Paul in chains. You're going to be thinking, like everybody else, I'm not so sure I want to be with Paul right now. He seems compromised. He seems like he's been lowered. I don't want to, I'm not sure I want to be with him. He's definitely not a megachurch pastor at the end of his life, right? And Paul says to Timothy, I want you to just don't be ashamed. Join me in suffering. He says in chapter 2, verse 3, I want you to suffer hardship. And when you go through the book of 2 Timothy, you start to see a lot of hardship type words. Suffer, hardship, be diligent, endure. He says, suffer hardship. In other words, get yourself mentally geared up. Because it's going to be hard. The first time you put on your track shoes and you go out to run, you're going to think that you're going to die really fast, right? It's really painful. What do you do? Keep going. You just keep going. Suffer hardship. Chapter 2, verse 7. Consider what I say. Just keep it in mind. Timothy, would you just install this in your mind? Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Chapter 2, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended of David according to my Gospel. Chapter 2, verse 15. Timothy, be diligent to be approved by God, not ashamed, handling the Word of God. Just just man up again. I've just now begun to pick up weights again after some decades of dormancy. You know what? And, and uh, you know, you just got to stay at it. Stay at it. Chapter 2, verse 19. Another one. He says... I want you to abstain from wickedness. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Chapter 2, verse 22. Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee the lusts. Just run away. I've read some astounding statistics on men in America, even churchmen in America of late. You know, guys, most of us are looking at some really bad stuff on our computers. 
In fact, uh, as much as 90% of us are, are sneaking around and looking at stuff on our computers. Verse 22, it says, run away. Just run away from that stuff. Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Chapter 2, verse 24, you've got to be kind to all. Be kind to everybody, even the people who bug you. Chapter 3, verse 14, continue in what you have learned. Chapter 3, verse 14, just stay on what you know. Chapter 4, verse 2, be ready all the time. And then chapter 4, verse 5, be sober in all things. Ministry, really what Paul is saying here, ministry is not a game. And and, uh, I needed to be taught that during our time that we lived here years ago. That was probably the biggest lesson that I learned while, while serving here at Cornerstone was that ministry is not a game. As I came from a context where I was a youth pastor, it's like, you know, let's just always have fun and be goofy, you know. And I learned with, uh, with death and divorce and serious stuff going on in the ministry and the fact that the servant of God is, is dealing with real human life and you're making really big decisions. Ministry certainly is not a game. It's serious business. Be sober. Well, those are the imperatives of Second Timothy, and we just barely skimmed them. Well, let's, let's apply some of these things uh, and take it home. Paul is writing from the uh, thought of a guy who is really reduced in his thinking, and he has trimmed his thinking down to that which truly matters, just totally, really, really matters. Everything else to him is superfluous. It's just like, ah, just ignore all that stuff. Let's just, let's just get really right on with what matters. That heaven and hell are real. The gospel is the most important thing that we can hold on to in advance and think about and live and do. And the gospel is the deal. So heaven and hell are real and the gospel is the deal. Jesus is God and the church is His body. Really, it gets, when you boil everything else away, that's, that's what the Christian life is. And, and, and Paul then becomes for us an example of a guy who has really trimmed all the fat off of his thinking. Could it be that the reason that we are not persecuted and that the reason we don't struggle more in, in advancing the gospel and, and could it be the, the, the reason we're not really enduring hardship for the gospel is that heaven and hell are not that real to us and the gospel is just much less a prominent feature of our lives? And, and Paul becomes for us this example of, of a guy who is, is totally trimmed down. And so then we look at Paul and we say, thank you, Paul, for writing this because you're a great example And we ask the question, is my life sufficiently pruned down to the essential so that the the truth sticks out like Mount Everest in my life because there's nothing else competing with the truth in my life and the gospel? Am I fleeing my youthful lusts? Do I hate stuff? that distracts me from the Christian life? Do I hate it? Do I, do I look at my possessions and go, you're, you're not really an asset. You're more of an anchor. 
that's keeping me from being free to serve God? Do I hate the stuff that distracts me? Uh, years ago, I used to be a real sports geek and and uh, all fired up about sports teams. And after a couple of my favorite teams went down in flames in championship round, I thought, uh, I found myself being really mopey. You know, like, oh, my team lost. Then I thought, what are you doing? Why are you letting a sports team affect you the next day? So I officially divorced my favorite sports teams. I'm done with you. Now I barely even know the players, you know. It's like, I'm done with that. Do I care about the flock of God as His lambs? Really, that's what Paul's all about. He says, you know, if you really want to focus on something important, it's right here. The lambs of God. That's so much more important. And do I eagerly anticipate heaven? Because you got you got to look at chapter four with me, and look at verse chapter four, verse six. Here's a guy that's really trimmed down in his thoughts, and so he says, "I am already being poured out," verse six, as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I love that. There are no regrets in Paul's life. And he says, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Man, do I eagerly anticipate heaven? Does my spiritual gift burn hot? Paul tells Timothy, stir up your spiritual gift. Studies tell us that About one out of four, one out of five people in the American church actually practice their spiritual gift. Which means that three out of four are vegging. I'm guessing, I'm wondering more every day whether a lot of the people who don't practice their spiritual gifts is because they're not saved. Are my eyes wet with tears over the lost? Do I ever just go through the checkout at the grocery store And look at the person who's checking out my groceries and just pray for that person that they will get saved. The imperatives of Scripture are written to move us. They are written in such a way that we have no option other than to just get it done. If I walk into one of my children's rooms, I say, clean this room up. What else is there to do? You got option one and option one. Option two, you never want to go there. Okay? And that's the imperative description. They ought to rock our world. And I just want to invite you, take a Bible and mark it up and look at all the imperatives of the New Testament, and, and, and there are a lot. And just say, God, please take these direct commands and change my life in a very radical way. And, and cause me to be like a private in the Marine Corps where I just say, I, sir, I just get it done. Because the imperatives are meant to do that, to state God's word very clearly and God's will very clearly. And God wants us to trim our lives down so that the truth stands out more distinctly. Trust that God will... Just take this little introduction to Second Timothy and use it in our lives. Let's pray together.
God, please take the imperatives of Your Word and like branding irons, burn our hearts. Uh, Just stab us through the heart with the direct commands of Scripture. They are Your Word and we must do none other than to obey and cause us, Lord, to reflect Your glory in obedient living because then the world will know that we are Your disciples. We just praise You for Paul's example and Timothy's. Amen.